You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us. So one Friday morning, uh, I get a call from my sister-in-law. Uh, that her car wouldn't start, and she lives down the street from us. So my brother-in-law was out of town with our youth at a concert thing that we go to in, in Orlando. And so she calls my wife and says, uh, hey, my car won't start. And then my wife says, Bob is on his way. So now I'm thinking it's the battery, but so, and I don't own jumper cables. So I stop at Target on the way, buy jumper cables, and I get to her house. I plug the jumper cables in, and the jumper cables catch on fire. Um, so I go into her house, get an oven mitt, and then take them off, and then we call a tow truck. Now, she comes out while I have the oven mitt on, which is, once again, not the best moment to come out in this when you want to look like an expert. But anyway, so she says, um, now, Bob, no offense, but are you sure you put the jumper cables on correctly? And I'm like, Rebecca, I'm a man. Of course I put the jumper cables on correctly. Truth be told, I watched a YouTube video on my way there. And uh, so I call my wife to give her an update to tell her, hey, I'm going to be a little bit later than I thought because of this fire situation. And then I tell her what happens, and she says, wow. She says, hey, uh, no offense, but did you put the cables on correctly? (laughs) Of course I put the cables on correctly. And so then... My sister-in-law, Rebecca, calls my brother-in-law and tells him what's going on and puts him on speaker, tells him the story of the cables, the fire, and the oven mitt. Uh, And and then my brother-in-law says, I mean, but do you think Bob put the cables on correctly? And she says, oh, by the way, you're on speakerphone. And he says, oh, sorry, Bob. Hey, um, do you think you put the cables on correctly? And I'm like, what is the deal? I put the cables on just fine. And so anyway, now, now... Home repairs are not my, repairs in general are not my strong suit. Now, um, by the way, the battery was dead. That's what happened. Not my fault. All right? The fire, faulty batteries. And so all this circumstantial evidence, people are like, oh, maybe it's Bob's fault. So anyway, before you jump to conclusions. So uh, anyway. Now, but but repairs are kind of not my strong suit. A while back, I was, uh, I had to fix, my daughter Mia's blinds uh, got kind of tangled. I took them off and then fixed them, and I was putting them back on. So I put one side on, and then I had the other side kind of wedged, but I had to really, there's this, anyway, little like contraption, you got to put them in. So uh, I, I decided that I was going to move the ladder while I was still on the ladder. If you learn nothing else today, by the way, I don't recommend that. So anyway, uh, and that's, ter- that's frowned upon by most of the ladder community. And so anyway, I'm, I just kind of try to jump. I don't know if you've ever done this. This is why, by the way, women live longer than men. Um, as I, I'm trying to kind of like jump the ladder to move over. Well, that didn't work. And so it topples over. I fall flat on my back after a loud scream that my daughter Mia referred to as kind of girly. And... Uh, Anyway, now I, then I realized I was laying on the floor, and I'm like, you know, maybe they weren't 
wrong to ask if I did the cables correctly. And, and now, all right. So the problem, is, like we don't like to present ourselves that way. Honestly, I tried this, like how am I going to open this message? And I'm like, well, I could tell the story of the cave and then falling down. And I'm like, is there another story that makes me look not like a complete buffoon? Uh, and because, and here's why, we want to present ourselves uh, to the world uh, in the best possible light. When things aren't going, w- when things are going well, we talk about the great decisions that we've made. And then when things aren't going well, we blame the devil because it certainly can't be our fault. And that's kind of the go-to for Christians. Like you make a terrible decision, you're like, it must have been the devil. Like you know, uh, like okay, um, you'd be amazed at how many people like they get in debt and they're like, it's Satan. That's who it was. Like Satan didn't go to Best Buy. You did. Uh, Satan didn't go to the car. Well, let me not say car dealership uh, because <laughs> some of his guys work there. Uh, and so and people get upset. Let me tell you something. All right. This is, has nothing to do with the message. But let me just give you a little life lesson. Anyone who charges what's called an origination fee is not working for God. Okay. You know what an origination fee is when you buy a car? That is the, a fee that they charge you to get the car on the lot or as we like to call it, the cost of doing business. But what they do is that they charge you. I remember in 2016, when I bought my car, um, they were going to charge me 500 bucks for an origination fee. And I was like, yeah, I'm not paying that. And they're like, well, everybody pays it. I'm like, well, I'm not everybody. And this guy didn't know me from Adam, but I'm like, I'm not paying it. He's like, well, everybody pays the origination fee. I said, well, I have a um, take delivery of the car fee. How much? And I said, and I charge 500 bucks for that. So then the guy comes out, you know, they always got to get somebody and they're like, oh, we can cut it in half. And I'm like, well, we're halfway there. I'll cut my fee in half. And so anyway, so anyway, so if you want to use that next time you're talking to somebody at the dealership, you charge your fee. And uh, because by the way, they need you a lot more than you need them. And you need to remember that when you go in. Anyway, someday we'll talk about that more. All right. So, but here's what human nature does. Human nature wants, uh, we want to present ourselves as younger, as trimmer, as smarter, as more successful than we actually are. And there is a word for that, that uh, in many cases, is pride. And, and here's the thing, by the way, there's nothing wrong with wanting to look younger, nothing wrong with wanting to look trimmer or smarter. It's that when we think that the presentation of ourselves is more important than the actual substance, that's when there's a problem and things get mixed up. Because, listen, the power to change your life, the power to change my life, the power to change our lives is found in one place, and that is in the person of Jesus and at the place of the cross. Now, here's why I'm telling you this, because last week we started a brand new series of teachings in a book in the New Testament called 1 Corinthians. It's a letter that the Apostle Paul, who, as you know, had this amazing uh, conversion experience, we'll talk about that in a little bit, Uh, but he was not a Christian. He was an antagonizer of Christians. He becomes a Christian and becomes not just any Christian, but becomes like a Christian missionary planting churches everywhere. Well, he plants a church in a city called Corinth, which is in Southern Greece. And there's, uh, he's there for about two and a half years. He leaves and then he gets a letter because there's this woman named Chloe that he's friends with that goes to the church at Corinth. Members of her family wrote to Paul and said, things are totally out of control in this church. And by the way, she was right. 
And as we go through 1 Corinthians, we're going to see all the problems that they had. They had division. They had infighting. They had people getting drunk while taking communion. File that under not cool. Uh, They had people suing each other. It was a disaster. And so then Paul writes them this letter, and here's what he tells them, that a divided world needs a united church. And the way that a church is going to be united is to have what the Apostle Paul calls the mind of Christ. What is the mind of Christ? The mind of Christ is when we think about things the way Jesus thinks about things. When we know what to do, because that's what Jesus would want us to do, it's when we speak in a way that's consistent with the character and nature of God. And if there's going to be unity in that church or this church or any church, there's got to be people uh, of wisdom and that see the power of God in, in their lives. And listen, there has to be humility. Because humility isn't thinking less of yourself, which is kind of what people tend to think it is. Humility isn't thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And now here's why I tell you this, because there's a little piece of background that I didn't tell you last time, because I knew I was going to talk about it today. And so it's what is going to really color Paul's words at this section at the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. I told you last week, if you were with us, that Paul, we know the story as to how Paul comes to Corinth. He comes to Corinth in the book of Acts chapter 18. If you want to read the story of how he got there, uh, Acts 18 will tell you. And so, but what, we, what you want to read first is Acts chapter 17, because in Acts 17, he goes to the city of Athens. Now, in Athens, and things didn't really go well for him in Athens, Paul found out that there was a group of philosophers that would hang out at what was called Mars Hill, or in the Greek language, it was called the Areopagus, and, uh, which is roughly translated Mars Hill. And this is where the intellectual elite would hang out, talk philosophy, talk theology, talk new ideas of the day. And so uh, there at Mars Hill, the Athenians uh, there in the city, they had an altar to every possible god that you could imagine. And then they even had an altar to, and it just said to this, to the unknown God. And this was kind of their catch-all because they thought, what happens? And once again, these people were steeped in Greek mythology. What happens if the, one of the gods shows up and we don't know who he is? We'll just say, hey, no, we, we had an altar for you, but we didn't know your name. So let us just etch that in real quick before, you know, set us on fire or something. And so, so that was kind of their insurance policy. Well, anyway, so and in fact, uh, Paul mentions this, and you'll see it in Acts 17. He says this, right up on the screen. You'll see it right here. There it is. It says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. And then Paul says, This is the God I want to make known to you. And he launches into this very eloquent, philosophical, uh, he quotes the Athenian poets. uh, And then uh, he quotes their philosophers, their poets, and then he briefly mentions the resurrection, and then people start losing interest. A few people believe, and by the way, this is the real key, no church is established in Athens, which is what Paul did in every city that he went to. And so he gets to Corinth a little bit defeated because things didn't go the way that he wanted because his brilliant philosophical sermon did not go over very well. And that's what he's going to recount to them. And what he's going to remind them is of the approach that he took 
when he got to Corinth because he totally changed his strategy when he got to Corinth. And this is huge. If we are people that say we want to see God's power in our lives, we need to understand this, that there is one place where we experience God's power in our lives, and it is in the person of Jesus and at the place of the cross. So we're going to start in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. We're going to start in verse 18. Here's what Paul says. He says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer or debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the the world through wisdom did not know God, It pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who would believe. For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those of us who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is stronger than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Than men. If you pause there and give me your attention, three things that we're going to talk about when it comes to experiencing God's power in your life. The first is this, is that the power of God clears the confusion. And I don't know if there has ever been a verse that is more relevant than it is right now in 2021, because we, uh, we live in a time where the message of the cross, the gospel, that we are sinners and that God sent a savior is deemed as foolishness by our culture. And listen, we live in a culture that is so confused. I mean, and, and, just, and you see this confusion, like the confusion that men and women are different. And you know what? There's nothing wrong with that, that men and women were created differently. That's not religious dogma. That's biology. And the, 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 uh, uh, the idea of, hey, we're going to uh, we're going to wait till we get married to have sex and have children um, because that's the best opportunity for kids to thrive is in a home where there's a mom and a dad. That's, once again, that, that's not, that's not uh, foolishness, even though it sometimes is deemed as such. And now listen, and I'm, forgive me if I'm going to be a little touchy, but I feel like in the church we need to talk about this kind of stuff because we are living in a culture that's talking about it and, uh, and especially as Christians, you're going to, you know, once again, we're probably going to be for the most part in agreement here, but you're going to go to work, you're going to go to school, you're going to talk to your neighbors, you're going to talk to your friends, and there's got to be an understanding where we understand what a biblical worldview is. Now, um, when a guy says, I can identify as a mom, you can identify all you want, but it doesn't change reality. And listen, when my daughter Mia, who's 14 now, was about three months old, and, you know, when you have your first child, those first couple of months are like a blur. You're just like, you know, what's the goal? Survive, right? That's the goal. Like, I'm just trying to make it, all right? And so we were just, we were just trying to make it. And so, and I remember that I was carrying her. And I had woken up in the morning. I wasn't wearing a shirt. And so I'm walking around with her. And you know how, because when like, really young babies, you don't carry them up, right? You kind of carry them laying down. That's for those of you that like have not been around children or never were one. Um, so anyway, so I'm walking, I've got, you know, Mia kind of in the sideways position and I'm carrying her and all of a sudden, chomp. She bit my nipple like it was a Chick-fil-A sandwich. And the worst part of it is like, I mean, I, 
screamed. And, uh, and I looked at her and she looked at me like, I'm ready to eat. Why is nothing happening? And, uh, and, 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 and that three months old, you know what she learned? That men and women are different. And she brought her over to her mom and she was much happier. And, and listen, now, This is true. This is true when it comes to gender, that men and women are different. And that's just, that's just how it is. That doesn't mean, and once again, we're going to talk about sexism and all that. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, just because, you know, we like to keep it light and fluffy here. Um, And so, but you know, when we talk about sin, and this is a thing that I see a lot, is people say, I can't believe that churches do so much damage to people because you tell them that they're sinners. And that does so much damage to children. No, it doesn't. And let me tell you why it doesn't. Uh, Because it provides, when you tell anyone that they are a sinner, and by the way, I'm still yet to meet someone that's like, really though? No, everybody's like, yeah, for real. And you don't even know me that well. And and I I, I really know. Um, I've never met anybody that's like kind of iffy on the subject. And But here's the thing. You know what it does when you say that here's the thing. You have a sin nature. You're a sinner. That's the way it works. It provides a context for being human. Because... When you, oh, you're telling kids they're broken. No, let me tell you what we're doing. We're telling kids that their tendency to sin is not out of the ordinary. It is common to all people. And they don't feel like they're the only people that struggle. Instead, but you know what happens is we are sinners, but that's not the only part of the story, is it? And that we are loved by God beyond our ability to even comprehend it. Now listen, we live in confusing times. And the thing that clears the confusion is the gospel. And here's the thing that those of us who are followers of Jesus need to understand. The gospel, the message of Jesus, the message of the cross can do what nothing else can do. Listen, I have the, over the last 20 years that I've been pastoring this church, you know what I've seen over and over again is couples that have gone to, um, they, they've gone from relationship to relationship. They've gone to counseling and therapy. Not that there's anything wrong with those things, but those things are very effective when they are used with the gospel not devoid of it. But you know what happens a lot of times? It's like I tried relationship after relationship after relationship, and I tried to get help, and then I came to know Jesus, and what happened? What human wisdom could not do, the power of God could do, which was heal relationships and transform hard hearts. Why? And is it because people who are seeking the wisdom of this world aren't sincere? No, of of course they're sincere. Everybody wants to change. Everybody wants to grow. Everybody wants to be happy. But listen, what the gospel does, here's what happens. The gospel forces us to stop making everything about us. And in humility, you know what we find? Joy. Because when I come to God in humility and surrender, which is what the gospel requires of us, that is the beginning of transformation. So when he says the Jews request Jews seek after a sign. By the way, that little phrase right there pretty much sums up the entire Old Testament. Israel seeking signs and not trusting God. Why? Because signs don't produce faith. Miracles don't produce faith. Trusting God's word produces faith. In fact, you'll see it on the screen in Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. In the Greeks seek wisdom. You see, I'm telling you, I've talked to so many people uh, when I'm out is that they'll say, well, you know, I don't believe the gospel. And they'll say something like this. It's just so primitive. I was having this conversation with my kids the other day. So at my house, we are like really big fans of Doctor Who. And uh, anyway, so, and, I, and if, you're, if you don't watch Doctor Who, you're really missing out because there's no other show on TV 
where people travel to different planets and every alien race speaks with a British accent. And it's like, welcome to Mars, mate. Would you like some tea? And uh, that's my British accent, by the way. And uh, so there's this episode of Doctor Who that we watched just a couple of weeks ago where the doctor goes back to the Salem witch trials in the 17th century. And now, just so you know, I've been to Salem. I grew up about 40 minutes from Salem, Massachusetts. It's actually a beautiful town. And at the end of the episode, I asked them what they thought. And here was, we, we have this conversation happened. They're like, you know, it's kind of weird that they presented Christians as unscientific and ignorant about the world around them. And, uh, and by the way, do you know how many people were executed in Salem for supposedly being witches, if, if you're not aware? You might think like 100, 1,000, 100,000, 20, and two dogs. Now, I don't really know how the dog was supposed to say he wasn't a witch, but, you know, they're like, hey, man, you're barking up the wrong tree. Uh, so, sorry. Witch humor is money in the bank. So, anyway, now, it's tra- 20 is tra- one is tragic, but it's way less than people think. And now, the problem is, and this is what I was telling them, here's the problem. Uh, the Salem witch trials were tragic because they were led by people who were quoting the Bible but did not understand it. Because if you read the New Testament, you know what you'll find? Is that there were people who practiced witchcraft. And you know that they were never murdered. There were people that, there, there was, there's, you read in the book of Acts, you get to, there's a girl that practices witchcraft in, uh, that goes up to the Apostle Paul. And Paul heals her and, uh, and, and prays for her. There's other people in, in the book of Acts earlier that practice witchcraft that the Apostle Peter rebukes for, for doing so. But he doesn't set the guy on fire for, for doing it. And so, and by the way, none of them were burned at the stake or drowned. They, they were hung on gallows uh, because one of the things, like, you know, this is what happens in America. By the way, America, this was a, America was a British colony at the time. And so that's how executions took place. So anyway, my point is blame the British. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but here's the point, and this is the thing that I said to them, is that I said secular people will always point out the mistakes that the church makes. Well, someone misquoting the Bible killed 20 people. And by the way, even one was wrong. But but you know that it wasn't that long before that, a couple centuries before, that science, because we believe the science, right? The science, we follow the science. Science was encouraging countries a couple centuries before to fire cannons into the air. And here's why, because all the scientists were saying, fresh air is killing us. Because there was a plague, the bubonic plague or the black plague, was ripping through Europe and killed 75 to 100 million people uh, in, in Europe. Close to one half of people in Europe died and the scientists were convinced that it was fresh air that was killing them. Now, here's how the, if you're not aware, here's how the Black Plague spread, is that when a human was bit by a flea that had been an, uh, a, a, an infected rat flea, and uh, because once again, where there are rodents, there's other insects and all that. And so the insects would, uh, or the, these bugs, these fleas uh, were on the rats and then they would bite, the, uh, bite people. And then that is, was the problem. And once again, there was a lack of hygiene in that time. And, the, um, and so many of the animals that the Bible restricted the Jews from eating were what were on those 
uh, had a lot of those, those fleas. And once again, that's what um, exacerbated the spread of the infection. But you know what happened is that scientists noticed something. And this is what led to the cure uh, and, and the, uh, the removal of the, the Black Plague or the cure for the Black Plague is that European countries started noticing that there was one group of people who didn't get sick, the Jews. Because the Jews had this ritual they had this ritual of washing their hands before they ate. And of course, the dietary laws in the book of Leviticus were saying that there were certain animals you could eat and certain animals you couldn't eat. And so while the world around them was plagued and dying, there was a group of people who took the Bible seriously that were totally fine and protected. And listen, here's my point. Do not believe the narrative that Christianity is archaic, or unsophisticated. Instead, the Bible, when it is read properly, is a wisdom beyond anything that our culture can provide. Okay, Paul goes on. He says this in verse 26. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that, as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, Pause there and give me your attention, please. The second thing I want you to know about the power of God is that the power of God flips the script. Now, there is something that, as I've read the Bible, God seems to enjoy, and that is taking the cultural norms and flipping them on their head. God never chooses the person that you would kind of expect would be the person. He, he, never, he doesn't choose the oldest son as is the normal order of things. He Instead of choosing uh, Cain, he chooses Abel and turns things on its head. He chooses Isaac, not Ishmael. He chooses Jacob, not Esau. He works through Judah, not Reuben. God chooses David, not his seven older brothers. And the reality that Paul has been laying out has been that God's plan, God's plan from the beginning so that everyone would know that he's the one that's doing the work. Now, let me tell you the danger in just reading this and not really being a thinking person about it is that we start to think when it's like, hey, not many were wise, not many were strong, mighty, not many uh, were of noble birth according to the flesh. And that is, once again, according to the cultural norms. But if we don't read it carefully, we start to think that it's a great thing to be an idiot and that somehow God has glorified the dumber that we are. And that's not what the text is saying. He's saying that there, you, when God called you, you were like that. But now, when you get to the end of the passage, he says, but now Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. So maybe you weren't wise when God called you, but you start growing in God. God's power starts working in your life, and now you become wise. Some of you guys know my story, if you've been around here for a while, that I was on the five-year plan in high school, and uh, that it took me five years to graduate. I tell people that it, uh, being a senior was the best two years of my life. And so I failed all four years of English in, in high school. I had to go to summer school every year to take English a second time. In fact, my mom used to tell me, for someone who doesn't like school, you go to school more than anyone I know. And there's really nothing 
What are you going to say? I mean, just being trolled by your mom. I mean, that's, just, that's it. So, but I remember about 15 years ago, I had this, I really felt like I had something in my heart and I wanted to write a book. I did not think I could do it. And by the way, I was right. I started writing. I was a grammatical disaster. And so I had talked to a, a guy that I knew that was, uh, or I had met that was in publishing, and he read my book proposal for my book, and he's like, Bob, we really like you, and we really like your content. And then he gave me a list of books to read that were, you know, just about like the elements of writing, books on grammar. And uh, basically, it was a very nice way of saying, hey, when you learn to speak English, come back and see us. And so one of the books that I read, I kid you not, I read a book that was called The Glamour of Grammar. Now, you think you've read books that are boring in your life. I can assure you there is nothing more boring than a book that has an entire chapter on the proper use of a semicolon. And it was, I mean, and I remember reading this, and I, I was reading it, because once again, I didn't learn any of it in high school, so now I had to learn it now. And, I, and I, when I was in high school, I thought a semicolon was just a comma that wouldn't commit to its true calling. And, uh, and, and listen, and you know what happens is, you start, you learn this stuff, and, and you know, you fast forward now, and I, I, I'm so grateful, I've been, you know, God has allowed me to write seven books, and that little book begin uh, is in its sixth printing, like, they ran the, uh, uh, you know, thousands of copies and sold them all and then ran another few more thousand. It's in its sixth printing. You know, I get messages every week from people all over the world who their pastor has given them that book and uh, they've just reached out saying, thank you so much for writing it. And, uh, and I'm so grateful that I learned the English language so that I was able to. And my, my point is this, is that just because you were foolish when God called you doesn't mean that that's the place where God wants to keep you. I had this experience a few years ago when I was talking to a friend of mine who I hadn't spoken to since I became a Christian. And so uh, he reached out to me, and so we, we talked. And, and after about five minutes on the phone, he says, Bob, you sound so much smarter. And I said, what does that mean? Was I an idiot before? And he was like, well, you know, anyway, how are your kids doing? And I'm like, oh, he avoided the question. And I, and I remember I got off the phone and I'm like, Jesus, thank you for saving me from being an idiot too, uh, amongst all these other things. And by the way, if you're not aware, the Apostle Paul was like the most educated of all the apostles, a voracious reader. He understood culture. He had the best teachers. In fact, in the book of Acts, Paul gives his background. He says this. He says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia and brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, who was probably the most respected rabbi at this time taught according to the strictness of our father's law and was zealous toward God as all of you are today. Paul was so je- uh, zealous for the, the Old Testament law that he persecuted and imprisoned Christians until he had an experience with Jesus that changed his life. I mean, this is the guy in high school that when they were like, you know, like who's vote- voted most likely to succeed, who's voted most likely to whatever. He was voted most likely not to convert to Christianity. And then not only did he become a Christian, he became Christianity's spokesperson. My point is this, what, what, the, what the power of God does is it's, it flips the script because God calls unlikely people to do amazing things. And he challenges us to become more than we are so that we can serve him to a greater degree. And when that happens, God is glorified. And then you know what happens? Other people look on and they say this, if God could do that in their lives, maybe God could do that in mine. 
And then Paul finishes the conversation in chapter one of uh, verse chapter two. He says, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellency of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing else among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and, and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, kind of like I did at Mars Hill, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. All right, last thing I want to tell you is that the power of God simplifies the complex. Now, I want to camp on this for a minute, and I want to talk about a few issues that are um, hot-button topics in our culture, uh, as if I haven't done that already. But, you know, if you're going to go down, let's just go down swinging. Um, What I'm not saying, when I say the gospel simplifies the complex, let me tell you what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that all problems have a simple answer. But I do know that part of wisdom is identifying the real problem and seeking solutions based on the real problem. Because the things that our world is struggling with could be solved if we really believed that the gospel, the message of Jesus, Jesus Christ and him crucified was the answer. Now, that sounds pretty good because we're in church, but how does that translate to the real world? So let's talk about three things that have taken center stage in the last 12 months in our culture. Let's talk about racism, let's talk about sexism, and let's talk about how the divorce rate has skyrocketed during uh, coronavirus in this last 12 months and how the gospel changes that. So here's the first one. Number one, racism. Racism is incompatible with the truth of the gospel. Now, this is important for us to think about because, uh, because we need to think about how, because we, we talk about, and once again, culture talks about how do we eliminate the reality of racism from our society, but because, and this is important, not every worldview has the means by which to deal with it. Secularism, for example, has no objective way to say racism is wrong. Now, I'm I'm in agreement that it is wrong, but they have no objective way to say that it is wrong. And uh, and by the way, secularists, many of whom are atheists, uh, look to Charles Darwin and the origin of species. Do you know what the origin of species, uh, f- the full name of the book is? Well, I'll tell you. The full name of the species on the origin of species by means of natural selection or the preservation of favored races. That is the full title of the book. And here, uh, uh, favored races in the struggle for life. Sorry, I forgot that part. Um, now, here's, here's my point. In fact, just a few years later in Darwin's book, The Descent of Man, um, he makes the claim that the Cauca- when it comes to races, the Caucasian race is the top race compared to other races. Now, to his credit, he opposed slavery. But, and this is the problem, is that for so many, they have used uh, the idea of Darwinism as their basis for their atheism. Be- but here's the thing that's important for us to understand. If there is no God, human rights don't exist what we consider to be basic human rights or inalienable inalienable human rights. They don't exist. They're just opinions. They can't be the basis by which we combat racism. By the way, Islam cannot be the cure for racism because in Islam, non-Muslims don't get the same rights as Muslims. 
Hinduism cannot be the cure for racism because in Hinduism there is a caste system where certain people are superior or inferior to others, which is basically racism rebranded. There is only one worldview that grants all people human rights and equality, and that is the Christian faith because we believe that all people were created in the imago Dei, that is the image of God. Yeah, but aren't there churches that claim to be Jesus and are racist? Yeah, but just because something has the name church in it doesn't make it a church, right? Some churches have more in common with church's chicken than they do with Jesus. And so uh, and, and the reality is, and here's the reality, once again, if we really understand the Bible, when we believe the gospel, the message of Jesus, racism wouldn't be an issue because racism is incompatible with the gospel. The Apostle Paul dealt with this. So once again, this isn't just me saying it. The Apostle Paul dealt with it, and here's why I phrased it the way I did. Because Paul comes to an area called Galatia, which is a a region in uh, Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. And the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' main guys, was there. And he notes this. He notes this thing that happens is that Peter hangs out with Gentiles, people that aren't Jews. But then when a group of people came from what he calls James uh, or Jerusalem, a bunch of people who were like really steeped in the Old Testament law, Peter would separate himself and not even sit with uh, Gentiles when they were around. In fact, let me read it to you in Galatians chapter two. It says this. Now, when Peter had come to, this, I'm sorry, it was in Antioch. He writes it to the Galatians. But uh, he says, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, that is from uh, Jerusalem, they would eat with, he would eat with Gentiles, but when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision, that is those who were of really keeping with the Old Testament law. Now, Peter fears that the, what the believers in Jerusalem are going to think, so he separates himself, and now he's only going to hang out with his, uh, his, his Jewish brothers and sisters uh, until those guys leave, and then he'll hang out with everybody else. And here's what Paul says. And Paul calls him out on it. Here's the next passage. He says, when I saw that they were acting in, uh, that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Peter's reaction of treating people differently based on their race, Paul says is this, it is not in line with the truth of the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is that Jesus died for all people, that he loves all people, that we are all created in his image. And yes, we are broken, but Jesus came into this world and died and rose again that we might see that relationship restored. And listen, here's the problem. We blame education. We blame the system. We blame a host of other reasons as to why racism exists. And those aren't the real causes. The real cause is the human heart. It's pride. The real cause, people, oh, it's a skin issue. It's not a skin issue. It's a sin issue. We are broken people, and that brokenness, unfortunately, manifests itself in a whole bunch of ugly and terrible ways. But when a person is reconciled to God, that's when we're really able to reconcile with one another. Okay, let's talk about the second thing, and that is sexism. Second thing, sexism evaporates in the light of the gospel. Now, let me tell you this. No one has done more for the cause of women than Jesus of Nazareth. And that is an absolute fact. Here's where the culture buries the lead, all right? 
Because as Christians, we believe that men and women are different. We believe that men and different, while equal, we have different roles and responsibilities. They interpret that as sexism. Now, let me explain what life was like in the ancient world. In the ancient world, women were not only not equal to men, women weren't even allowed to testify in court. Women had zero standing culturally. And then Jesus comes along, and here's what he says. He allows women to follow him. He allows women to be his disciples, which was totally unheard of at the time. The Christian faith took women who had no standing, and here's what it did. It presented men and women as equal in the sight of God and others. Once again, Paul in Galatians says it this way. He says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you were all one in Christ Jesus. Listen, politicians can talk about the war on women all they want. But there is one person who, would, who has done more historically for the cause of women in society than any other person, and that is Jesus. So if you really want to embrace women's equality, become a Christian. All right, last thing, and let me lighten it up, because seriously, um, we've, we've gotten heavy here for a little bit. All right, lastly, let's talk about marriage. marriage marriages are infused with joy through the gospel. Listen, marriages are struggling and uh, lockdowns. And part of the reason is, is that people are angry. People are angry that a year of their lives were taken away from them and they don't know who to blame. And so marriages have taken a huge hit over the last year with a 25% increase in divorces. Now, every marriage struggles. Every marriage has conflict. But the key to joy in your marriage is realizing that, you know, I don't have to figure out how to change my spouse. I mean, honestly, people have asked my wife. I, I am amazed that my wife is still married to me after 24 years because I live with me and I can barely deal with it. Um, but, and I'm, I'm glad that there's the no divorce clause in the Bible because any rational person would have run for the hills after the first 30 days. Um, and people have, you know, over the years, people have asked, have you ever thought about divorcing Bob? And she's like, no, but I haven't taken murder off the table. And uh, so that is her answer. And I find it slightly frightening. And... Uh, but see, it's learning to love in a way that is consistent with the gospel. Now, here's how the Apostle Paul would put it in, in the book of Ephesians. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. So husbands, and this is in verse 28, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies for he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, how are husbands to love? Like Jesus. How did Jesus love? By sacrificing and giving his life for the bride of Christ. And that's how, that's how we love, by sacrificing and giving our lives. And by the way, that's more than protection and defending your family. That means crucifying our desires for the sake of our spouse, for the sake of our family. And listen, guys, unless you are married to like the most difficult woman in the world who has no interest at all in following Jesus, your wife is going to respond to sacrificial love. And because God knows that as men, we are a little bit slow, he gives us a second illustration to where it's like, you should love like Christ loved the church. Well, that could be interpreted many ways, right? Because we say things like that. He says this. Uh, he gives us another illustration. He says, loving your wife is like loving yourself. And think about the ways you love yourself. I mean, you buy yourself only the clothes that would make you look best. 
you buy yourself presents just because. Because you deserve it and you've been working hard. You pick only your favorite foods to eat just to make yourself happy. And God is saying, you know how you're always on your own mind uh, and constantly thinking about ways to make life better for yourself? Yeah, do that for your spouse. And listen, and there's a whole bunch of ways that that works. That means if your wife is working around the house, you're working around the house. If your wife is making dinner, you're making dinner. And you don't sit until she sits because we are there to model service and sacrifice the way Jesus did. Listen, if you want your wife to trust you, be a man who doesn't make decisions that just benefit him. Sacrifice your desires for her and she will willingly trust you. And listen, that's just the way it works. And because if you want to experience the power of God in your life, it isn't just God showing up and working a miracle. Sometimes it's the power of God showing up through the wisdom of God, transforming your life so that now the decision that you might need a miracle to undo never gets made. And you make a different decision and that God now begins to work supernaturally, naturally in your life. And then everything begins to change. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for the reality, the simplicity of the message that anyone can understand. Jesus and him crucified. So God, help us. Help us in a world that is very confused to share light, love, and wisdom to those of us who need it the most. And we pray it in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.